Hey, good evening, Cornerstone. How are you guys doing tonight? Good, good. Hey, a couple of announcements then. Um, the spring semester of the mind ends next week. So we've got two more meetings left, and then we're going to break for the summer. We're trying to follow the Chandler School District school calendar. So we're going to break for the summer then, and then we will rejoin together, uh, join back up together on Tuesday, July 24th. Um, apparently that's when the school calendar starts for, uh, for Chandler. And so Tuesday, July 24th, we're going to make some announcements over the summer and, uh, and we'll um, decide on a topic to move forward with, which means that we've got to wrap up Ephesians in two weeks. Um, and that's going to be a task uh, to, um, to accomplish, but I think we can do it. And so uh, let me do this. Let me open us in prayer, and then we will jump right into Ephesians chapter 6. God, you're good to us, and Father, I pray that as we've worshipped and we've talked about there is no other name than the name of Jesus. The reason we can proclaim that, Father, tonight is because we know that to be true because we've read it in the Word of God. Christ says that uh, he is the way and the truth. And the life and that no one will come to the Father but through him. And so God, we come before you today and we are leaning on you uh, through what we can learn from your word tonight. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would move in the lives of everyone here in this room. That whatever we need to see in your scripture tonight is what we would see. God, I pray that we would approach tonight with just such an open heart. Ready to be challenged. um, Ready to be... um, Excited and encouraged about uh, the potential that we have to leave this room changed people. And that certainly is my heart, God. Change my life even in this next hour. And we will give you all the praise in Jesus' name. Amen? Okay, Ephesians chapter 6 is where we left off last week. Last week, And let me just recap, I guess, for all of us. We created over the past three weeks the ideal family. And what I mean by that is... I believe that God doesn't make mistakes. And I believe that when God sets out a role for you and for me to play, whether it be uh, employee to employer, whether it be friend to friend, whether it be spouse to spouse, child to parent, he makes no mistake in the way he goes about giving us those instructions. And so when God says, hey, this is the road I want you to take, he's well aware that we have the freedom not to take that road but he is setting for us the ultimate or the ideal standard. You may look at this list and you may think, that's not, I can't handle that. And that's okay. God's going to meet you tonight where you're at. But I can't shy away from what I know to be true. And what I know to be true is when I want to look for what are the roles a wife should play in a marriage, I I need to go no further than this list here and maybe a few additional things, but they're all going to come from God's word. When I want to look at the roles of a husband, if I go to man camp or if I go to the men's Bible study and they're talking about the roles of a husband, guys can give me their stories and they can tell me what's worked and what hasn't. And we can get into great relationships that way, man to man. But in terms of what I need to do to fulfill my roles as a husband, I need to look no further than God's word. And so we talked about how do we do that? How do we do that effectively? And this is the list we we generated and it's all from the Bible. And so what I want us to do is look at that list, whether we're single or married or somewhere in between there and ask is that, can I, can I do that? Not just can I do that, but can I do that unconditionally? Meaning that I don't need to wait for my spouse to do her role or I don't need to make my spouse to do his role before I do mine. 
See, that's what, that's what our culture has trapped us into believing. Don't move until they move first. And we've discovered that doesn't work. Uh, my parents divorced when I was seven. My dad remarried when I was 10, I believe. Divorced again when I was 11. Remarried when I was 14. My mom remarried when I was 14. By the time I was 14, I was in three of my parents' weddings. And guys, if that doesn't mess somebody up, I don't know what will. Now, I love my parents to death. They love me. We have, I, I think we have very healthy relationships now. But if you don't think that pushes a kid into a fear of commitment, um, let's do coffee. <laughs> and, and it's not because people hate each other going into it. It's not because people go into this saying, I'm going to give this thing two years. I think it's because people go into it the way our culture wants us to go into it, which is if you like someone and you think you love someone, just go and just roll the dice and see how this is all going to play out. And as Pastor Lynn has been talking about on Sunday mornings now, that is the complete opposite of what the Bible has to say. The Bible has to say, come in with an attitude of serving each other. And these lists are the epitome of serving each other. And so that's what we've been discussing. And then we and then Paul showed us in Ephesians chapter six, verses one to three, there are roles for kids now. And we talked about those to obey mom and dad, to honor mom and dad, um, to listen to our parents. And we have the right moms, dads to say to our kids, this is what the scriptures are telling you. When I say obey me, I'm not saying that because I want to lord that over you or because I even generated that idea. It's because the Bible tells you to obey me. Why should you listen to me? Why should you honor me? Because the Bible tells you to do that, son, daughter. Dare I say in this crowd as well, stepson, stepdaughter. Blended family, adopted son, adopted daughter. That is your role as a child. If I am the authority figure, i.e. parent, in your life. And what we talked about last week was why children don't do that. And we discovered that there's a point in our, our lives from Ezekiel 18 where we've got to let our children go. Because if they're going to be disobedient, we've got to trust that God will work that out in their lives. But as parents, we need to do as much as we can. In fact, if you look at Ephesians 6, look at verse 4. And fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and in the instruction of the Lord. And we looked at Proverbs 1, I believe, last week. And moms, you have this role in Proverbs 1 and in Proverbs 6 to teach your children as well. And what we, we tried to answer, albeit brief, because we ran out of time last week, is what are you teaching your kids? And, and you know, we need look no further than this. This is what we teach our kids. If we're teaching our kids this, the Proverbs, guys, are chock full of Proverbs telling us that if we do that, chances are very, very good your child will live a very long and healthy life. In fact, it says that this may be well with you. This comes out of Deuteronomy and that you may live long on the earth if you do honor mom and dad. But what we, I guess what we're realizing is, is we are giving our children every right not to honor mom and dad because our children are looking at mom and dad saying, show me the way, lead not just with your words, but with your actions and I will follow. But when you have missteps, mom, when you get angry at me, dad, when you provoke me to anger, it's difficult for me to do this. 
And so we've got to work very, very hard at doing, when we're doing this and this, guys, children are going to do this more times than not. And so we want to work hard at fulfilling those roles because I want my kids to live a long and prosperous, healthy life, wouldn't you? And I think sometimes we reach our wits end and we say, just obey me. Now, what about the parents that are doing it right? What about the parents that are doing this and are doing this, but they have unruly children? Help, my kids are driving me crazy. We talked, we just really just ended on this, and this is where I want to pick it up. Turn to Proverbs 13, actually. Turn to Proverbs 13 real quick. And let me just address this in, in just a few moments. Do I have options when it comes to when I have an unruly child? And I think you do. The first option comes out of Proverbs 13, verse 24. Proverbs 13, 24. Proverbs 13, 24. He who spares his rod hates his son. But he who loves him disciplines him diligently. And we looked at that word, the rod there. And we'll look at all four of these passages include that word. And in the Hebrew, it simply means a stick or an actual rod. Now, again, interpreters have, have various, they want to go in different directions. I just can't get away from the texts that I read that include that word, that it actually means a physical rod. Some people mean it's, a, it's a, the spirit of, a, of the rod of discipline, that they're under some sort of rod of discipline. I actually think it's an instrument, so, so be it. Now, that doesn't mean that you can or should or shouldn't use an actual instrument. And I don't want to go off into a big, long debate on how to spank, where to spank, when to spank. Um, can you, you know, if you're in line at Target, is that a good place? Can you just, CPS going to come knocking at your door? Uh, that, that's, that is a conviction issue. But what I want to land on, I guess, tonight is that I think it's an option. I think physical discipline with our children is an option from the Bible. Okay. He who spares the rod, uh, hates his son, but he who loves him disciplines him diligently. So we concluded last week by saying, you don't do this out of anger. Father, do not provoke your children to anger. And in Ephesians 4, it says, get angry, but don't sin on that anger. Don't let the sun go down on your anger. So if you're acting in discipline out of anger, you need to step away and do the 10 second rule and whatever it is that you can catch your breath. But at the end of the day, I remember coming home, I was on like Pecos and, and Greenfield. We live kind of out there. And, and this is a few years ago, Leanne and I were still married and we got in the car and we're driving, we're at the stoplight and Caden, my now 12 year old, he's about six at the time or so. And he is just being unruly. And I made the mistake of saying, when we get home, I'm going to spank you because we had about three or four miles to get home. And I had to listen to not only him beg me not to do that, but I had to listen to my wife beg me not to do that. So not only was he crying, but now she was tearing up thinking, please, you know, you don't have, it wasn't that bad. Well, I had already said I was going to. And again, so what I did was, long story short, I had the time to get over the anger part of it. So by the time we got to our house, it was very methodical. There was no anger involved, but it needed to be done. And that's what I think the scriptures are saying is a loving parent does that. Your child needs to know you love them even during the tough times, including spanking. Okay, so that's kind of our, our, our framework is, I do not do this out of anger. 
And my child needs to know afterwards that it is out of love. Okay, turn to Proverbs 22 then real quick. 22.15, go two pages over to the right. 22.15, Solomon says, Foolishness is bound up in the heart of a child. The rod of discipline will remove it far from him. Okay, foolishness is bound up. If you want to help your child eliminate foolish choices in their life, Solomon's saying one option is the rod of discipline. We'll remove that far from him or her. Proverbs 23, then go one passage over to Proverbs 23. Look at verses 13 and 14. Solomon says, do not, do not hold back discipline from the child. Although you beat him with the rod, he won't die. You shall beat him with the rod and deliver his soul from hell. Isn't it, it, don't you love the word of God, how comforting it is for us as parents? Solomon's come alongside and says, no matter how much your kid screams, they're not going to die over this. Uh, In fact, if you don't do it because you think that they are going to die, you're actually going contrary to the word of God. He says, don't hold back discipline from a child. Although you beat him with the rod, he's not going to die. We have all played that part, haven't we, as children? We're great actors. But Solomon knew what was true, and that is that's not going to kill a kid. In fact, it will remove remove folly far from the kid. One more passage, then Proverbs 29. And these are just but a few, but I just wanted to highlight the fact that it's not just in one passage. 29.15. Listen to this one. Solomon says this, The rod and reproof give wisdom, but a child who gets his own way brings shame to his mother. Guys, if we're looking to instill wisdom into our children, one of the ways is to not withhold discipline from them. It's an amazing passage. If, you, if I want to instill, if I want to give my child wisdom, one of the ways is discipline. And Solomon's clearly saying to me here, it, it may include physical discipline. But a child who gets his own way brings shame to his mom. So, Paul comes along and tells us these are the ideals and here are some ways to do this effectively. But let's just be real with one another tonight. This isn't always the case, is it? What if you have a wife that's doing all of these things? Because I think some of us out there are thinking, I'm tracking with you, Greg, and and I get it's unconditional. And I got to be honest with you, I'm not bragging here, but I have been doing these things. And this isn't getting done. It's just not getting done. What do I do? Uh, two weeks ago, I had someone come up, I think, afterwards, and, and she basically just told me that. She said, I, you know, I, I married into this marriage, and I thought that if I did this, and this would happen, and I'm doing this, and this isn't happening, I, I don't know what to do anymore. Okay, so if, you're, if, you're, if that's, you know, because again, this is ideal, and I'm, I'm willing to admit, sometimes, guys, you're doing this. And then this isn't happening. That's a frustrating life, isn't it? And you've gone to bed and I've gone to bed or some of you have gone to bed many a nights thinking, God, I don't, I, how do I do this? Because I'm trying my best here and it's not, I'm getting nothing on this end. In fact, if I were to ask you, honestly, just between me and you tonight, do you even know where your spouse is spiritually? Some of us would say, I, I'm hoping but I honestly don't know. Because these are the fruits of a Christian. 
this is a selfless life you're living here. And if you're not doing this, it's probably because you're struggling with selfishness versus selflessness. And one of the fruits that is going to be displayed in yours in my life is that we follow Christ. He is the model of selflessness. And so we follow this by, by following Christ. But if I'm not following Christ, it's difficult for me to do this. So what do I do if I'm jammed up there? If, I, if I'm doing this and I'm not getting this back, or, you know, what can I do? So real quickly then, to go, go to 1 Peter. It's a, to me, it's a, fascinating, it's a fascinating passage because I believe 1 Peter's in the New Testament. Um, it's fascinating, I guess, because I like how practical it is. We're not just talking about theory. We're not just talking about ideals. But in 1 Peter, it's after James, and then we come to 1 Peter. I think it's in chapter 3. God has given instructions here in 1 Peter 3, I think, to exactly what we're talking about here, which is if all this goes correctly, 1 Peter 3 doesn't pertain to you. But what about if all isn't well? So Peter says in 1 Peter 3, in the same way, wives, be submissive, same word here, hupostaso, be subject, be submissive to your husband, so that even if any of them are disobedient to the word. So, so Peter's saying to wives, wives, do this. But sometimes your husband isn't going to do this. In fact, he says, if any of them are disobedient to the word of God, in other words, they're giving you cause to think they're not going to ever do this because they don't know Christ. That they may be one without a word by the behavior of their wives. And then he says in verse two, as they observe your chaste, uh, which means modest and respectful behavior, your pure and respectful behavior. Then he goes on to some adornment issues. But then he says in verse four, but let it be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable quality of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is precious in the sight of God. If you're struggling, he says, ladies, keep doing what you're doing, but recognize what's not going to win your husband is fighting, is dragging him here is saying, you're doing this all wrong. Peter says, that's not what's going to win him back. But what's going to win him back is you continue to do this day after day after day, and you model for him through your behavior with a gentle and quiet spirit and a pure and respectful behavior. And you say to me, Greg, you have no idea, and maybe Peter doesn't have any idea what you're talking about, because I've tried that. And it's not working. Okay, so go one more passage over with me here. Go to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. 1 Corinthians chapter 7. 1 Corinthians, uh, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Romans, 1 Corinthians. I, and my point in doing this, guys, is just to, just to alert us to the fact that the Bible is clear that they, the, God knows that we're imperfect people. And God doesn't set this up and say, if you're not doing this, then there's no hope and you're out. And he's just saying, this is the standard to strive for. Okay, so you're doing that, ladies, you're being quiet and gentle, you're being respectful, and it's just not taking. Listen to 1 Corinthians chapter 7, starting in verse 10. 
1 Corinthians 7, 10, he said, Paul says, but to the married, I give instructions, not I, but the Lord, that the wife should not leave her husband. Because you've been doing this, ladies, and you're thinking, I'm out. Because I've done this for a month, a year, maybe a decade, and he's not even close to this, I'm out. And Paul says, do not leave your husband, but if she does leave, let her remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband, and that the husband should not send his wife away. Now listen to this. But I say to the rest, to the rest I say not the Lord, if any brother has a wife who's an unbeliever, and she consents to live with him, let him not send her away. And the woman who has an unbelieving husband, and he consents to live with her, let her not send her husband away. In other words, guys, if you're married to an unbelieving wife, you got to stay married. Wives, if you're married to an unbelieving husband, you have to stay married. Yeah, but we thought we were, we thought we were both believers when we got married. He professed his faith to me. She professed her faith to me. And now you've realized over the years, and and remember what Lynn said on Sunday, sometimes we get into this thing and it has just turned on its head. And guys, I'm here to tell you, culture is going to scream at you, get out. Life's short, you're going to be negatively impacted. Those around you aren't going to like it. Your family's not going to like it. They're going to cry out to you, get out. And you're not going to get much pushback. And and can I even say, probably in the church, you're not going to get much pushback. But Paul says, don't leave. Gentle and quiet spirit, pure and respectful behavior, don't leave. Then he says something in verse 14 that I thought was interesting. It says, for the unbelieving husband is sanctified through his wife and the unbelieving wife is sanctified through her believing husband. For otherwise your children are unclean, but now they're holy. There's something about being married and being married to a believer for the unbeliever that brings them, draws them closer to a point of becoming a believer. There's something that, that when they see the reflection of Christ in you, It does something to them that has to change them. But it may not. And that's why he says in verse 15, yet, so you've done all this, right? You've done all this, you've done all this, and they're not buying it. You've you've been respectful. They're still not buying it. And Paul knows enough to know that may not work. And so he concludes this in 15. If the unbelieving one leaves, he says, let them leave. If the brother or the sister is not under bondage, in such cases, God has called us to peace. For how do you know, a wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, a husband, whether you will save your wife? He says, if the unbelieving spouse leaves, don't go chasing them all around the country, trying to, trying to gather them back. He says, let them leave. Now, again, he's wrapped this up in about four or five verses, and it makes it sound all kind of weak and bad. We all know any marriage that looks like this in 1 Corinthians 7 is messy, is ugly, is chock full of fights and arguments and dissension and hurt and heartache and pain. And I believe Paul says you reach a point where if an unbelieving spouse leaves... And then he says, and you're not under bondage in such cases. Some of you are killing yourselves because you don't know what to do here. 
And may, you know, just maybe a passage like that brings you hope. Now, please hear me clearly. I've got very conservative views on divorce. I don't think divorce is an option in very many cases. Um, in very few cases, I think the Bible is clear that in, in Matthew 5, there is an exception that Jesus gives for immorality or the word there is pornea. It's kind of sexual immorality. I think most of our divorces happen because of irreconcilable differences. I'm not sure it happens because of sexual immorality. And in fact, even if it does happen because of sexual immorality, I think the marriage can be saved. Obviously, a whole different issue there with trust. This is not an escape clause. So hear me clearly on that. But I think what happens is that Paul is admitting you can only do this so much. And God's saying, do it, do it, do it, do it, do it. But there may be a point where that person is so convicted and is so against what you're doing, they just take off. Does that make sense? Okay. Um, I want to help us understand that life is not ideal for a lot of us in here. This is what we shoot for. But sometimes it doesn't always work like this. So 1 Peter 3, maybe 1 Corinthians 7 can help us understand this a little better, okay? Any questions about that? I, I just want to move along, but I, do, I certainly want to address any questions that you have here. I've got a couple here. Okay, I had a question regarding uh, the, section we're at, the section we're in regarding the unmarried. In, yeah. In uh, Corinthians 7, uh, what is that, 8? I'm sorry, which passage? Uh, 7, 8. 1 Corinthians? 1 uh, Corinthians Seven eight. Seven eight. Yeah, I'm sorry. And then uh, seven twenty five, for example, talks about uh, those who marry will face many troubles in this life, and I want to spare you of this. Yeah. <laughs> Isn't that great? And then it also talks about just above that about you know not being married and don't right. seek a wife. So it's just kind of confusing. Yeah, it is. And and so let's just kind of admit a couple things here, Paul. Um, Great, great man, uh, as far as we know, never took a wife. And I believe what Paul was saying here was, listen, um, for as much as I know and for as, much, um, for as much of a reputation I've created for myself, humanly speaking, it was a Pharisee, knew the law. Um, he had a great thing going for him secularly. When God changed his life, I, thanks, I, I thought, wow, that magically disappeared. Um, when his life got changed on the road to Damascus, God had set him on a course that didn't involve marriage. And I think as Paul did his journeys, especially in Corinth, in fact, in chapter 5 in, in, in 1 Corinthians, he says it's actually reported, same word here, by the way, it's actually reported that there's pornea among you. And the immorality of such a kind doesn't even exist among Gentiles that someone is sleeping with his father's wife. So he's going to the church in Corinth and he's watching these marriages just kind of just blow up in front of him. And he's watching sexual immorality in, in this particular case just become pervasive amongst believers. And so he reaches chapter 7 and he says, let me tell you guys something about marriage and the single life. Let's just admit something and get it all out in the open. If I'm single, I can devote my time so much better to, the, to Christ because he is my only relationship, if you will. 
And so he says, just point blank, I wish that more of you were like that. I wish that more of you were like me in that regard. And my take is that I think he was watching marriages just go haywire. This wasn't happening. He was watching dissension take place. And he was watching people put their spouses above the Lord as so many of us are challenged to do. And so he just simply concludes, I wish that wouldn't happen. But he says, but because of immoralities. In other words, he's saying, but it's better to keep the church from scandal rather than having a bunch of you just sleep around with each other and the church be known as this, you know, big congregation of people just swapping girlfriends and boyfriends and committing immorality. Let each man have his own wife and let each woman have her own husband. He says, let the husband fulfill his duty and let the wife fulfill her duty. Stop depriving each other except for a time of agreement. In other words, don't, don't neglect your sexual fulfillment and being faithful to each other sexually. But as God has commanded it, let each man have his own wife and each wife have her own husband. And that's your sexual partner. And people were having multiple sexual partners and Paul wasn't a big fan of that. And so he says, that's one of the reasons I'm suggesting you get married. But he says that in verse 7, I wish everyone was like me. I wish everyone was single. However, I know that that's not always going to be the case. So then he goes in to talk about the unmarried and the married. But I think that's the genesis of why Paul says what he does is because he wasn't married and he saw the fruits of that. For those of us that are single or have been single, you know that you can devote all of your attention to the Lord. And on a real practical level, um, even I've got three kids, but I'm single technically. Um, I don't need to ask someone else how to spend my money. So if I want to donate $10,000 next week to, to a mission, I can do that. I don't need to seek someone else's approval. If I'm married and do that, <laughs> I got my <have> issues. <laughs> um, and so that's what I think he's saying is, is there is a huge difference um, between a married life and a single life in terms of its devotion to the Lord. But he's smart enough to realize most of us have desires, physical desires, and one way to have them met is through marriage. In fact, it, biblically, it's the only way to have them met. Yo, real quickly, I'm sorry. Um, the verse about um, if an unbeliever leaves the relationship, yeah. don't chase after them. Right. When it says unbeliever, does that literally mean someone who has never, ever, ever been a follower of Christ. What if that person has at one point in life, but they're currently so, so far away from God at the current moment? How would you respond to that? Yeah, that's a great question. How do you know if someone's a believer or not? Um, it's a great question. I, I wish I could sum that up in a minute or two. Um, I've always looked at time as the X factor to determine someone's beliefs. Because we all have seasons of sin. We all have that season where I am far away from the Lord. Otherwise, we wouldn't be talking like, well, then I got close to the Lord. Well, that means then you were far from the Lord at some point. So, yeah, you know, this is not, I haven't seen you act like this for a week. I'm out of here. You know, that's not. And, and so I wish I could give you some kind of a time frame. I just, I can't. I have a good friend of mine. Um, he came home twice, came home once to um, a note on the table. It was like out of a Hollywood. He just came home and a note was on the table. I'm out of here. They didn't have any kids. And so 
up until that point, he had seen some issues in her life that he really did conclude. I'm not confident that she really is following the Lord. And then he came home one day and there was no on the table that she's out of here. So I think that that passage could apply to him. Um, got remarried, uh, got married again, and he came home a second time and um, literally like packing a U-Haul, moving. So again, he had some questions as to why, why would someone do that to me? Now, again, that doesn't prove belief or unbelief, but to leave your spouse and to abandon that relationship when the scriptures are so very clear not to do that, it really does raise the question, are you submitting to the Lord? Um, so, so I think the abandonment itself is, needs to be valued in terms of belief or unbelief. Um, I find it difficult to believe that a person who loves Jesus with all they've got, even if they're having a sinful season in their life, would go to the extreme of abandonment. So Paul, I think, uses that as a, as a, as a, a you know, a filter maybe to say, maybe they didn't know Christ. Because uh, that, that is what is more extreme than just picking up and leaving. So, but to, but to answer your question, there is no, um, okay, six months, you've, you haven't done this in six months. I'm, you know, that's not, it is a, it is a point of conviction. Counsel, friends, um, a great resource is the people around that person. Um, but we guys, we are known by our fruit. And I, guys, I used to think that, you know what, um, if you say you believe Jesus, you know, that you've punched your ticket and you're in. And I, I'm reading too many passages in the Gospels where Jesus is saying, follow me, follow me, follow me. Jesus is say, says in Matthew 25, there are going to be some who thought they followed me. And I said, I never knew you. We are known by our, our actions. And throughout, the, especially the New Testament, I'm finding over and over and over again, the actions of a believer look a certain way. They just do. If you're not displaying the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentle self-control, you've got issues. Now, that doesn't mean we go down the checklist and I've, you know, I'm, I'm nailing each one every time. And certainly some are going to be stronger in my skill set than others. But if I'm going down that list, when Lynn said, 1 Corinthians 13, if I'm going down that list, love is patient, love is kind, love is... And I'm not seeing any of that in my life. Either God's not doing his job or I've... I've I need to work on getting to know God. I'm confident if you're a new cre- if you're a new creature, your life will look different. It just will. So, so I would use that as a gauge as well. Um, I really got, we'll we'll keep going. We'll just meet for a couple more weeks. It doesn't matter. Just a, a yeah. No, go ahead, Craig. I don't want to get real contentious here, but you know, leaving is a statement. It's a personal statement. And you may be struggling in your faith. Yeah. You may be suffering from uh, ancestral demonic activity, the sins of the Father. Uh, there are, can be conditions in a person's life that lead to um, a dead end. And if you can't deal with those things, you certainly cannot deal effectively yeah. With with a wife or with a husband. And so it 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 could be simply a matter of survival for both because maybe under that sort of condition 
it is the safest and sanest thing to do. Yeah. Until perhaps you get straightened out. Sure, I agree, but I think you've added a, a lot of qualifiers to that particular situation you were talking about. If a husband goes to a wife and says, we are really struggling in this area, and some time apart would be would be recommended in terms of, uh, you know, some physical separation. Uh, absolutely. If counsel is advising, hey, you guys need to, you need to go to your corners here because it's just getting, neither of you are doing a good job with this, okay? If, if you have, but that's not what Paul's talking about in, in 1 Corinthians 7. So I just, I want to be clear about that. But there's, what you're suggesting is that there is some hope for reconcile. I'm saying that it's a down-and-out situation, perhaps, that cannot be recovered under that given circumstance. Yeah, I, I agree. Paul. I think Paul was saying in the end, if I leave you, that I don't want you to feel, I think he's saying to the, the spouse who got left, that I don't want 30, 40, 50 years to go by and for you to feel like you are bound to that relationship when that person became a ghost. Um, and so I, so I think he added that provision in there in 1 Corinthians 7. Up until that point, all kinds of things need to be done in that relationship. But if that's the end result based on the choice of that person who he deems as an unbeliever, I think he gives that, that provision for that spouse who, who got left that you don't have to feel like, well, that's it. My life's over. Um, I, I was bound to this person. I committed to this person. They're a ghost, and I, but I still have to be bound to that person. So, um, yeah, one more, and then let's talk slaves. Just uh, one thing. You mentioned before about um, an unbelieving spouse chasing another one all over the country or something, trying to get back together. A believing spouse. Yeah. yeah. Well... My wife and I were not believers, and we were divorced after ten and a half years of marriage and four yeah. children. She became a believer, but she didn't chase me at all. As a matter of fact, she and churches and Bible studies sent somebody else. They sent Jesus after me. Yeah, it didn't take the, it didn't cost anything for them. Absolutely, just a little time in prayer. <laughs> yeah, and you know what. He caught me. And he caught you. You cannot escape him. Absolutely. Well said. Well said. Good stuff. Good conversation, folks. Okay, here we go. Ephesians 6, verse 5. Okay, so again, ideal, but certainly something to strive for. Um, Doesn't happen every day, but certainly Paul gives us great, great wisdom here in Ephesians 6 and then... Uh, one to four. Now we pick it up in five. Slaves, be obedient to those who are your masters according to the flesh with fear and trembling in the sincerity of your heart as to Christ. Not by way of eye service as men pleasers, but as slaves of Christ doing the will of God from the heart. Uh, he says in verse seven, with good will render service as to the Lord, not to men, knowing that whatever good thing each one does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether slave or free. And masters do the same thing to them and give up threatening, knowing that both their master and yours is in heaven and there is no partiality with him. 
Paul has the same thought going on here in this relationship, right? He says to wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. He says, children, obey your parents in the Lord for this is right. And then he says, slaves, be obedient to your masters as according to the flesh and the sincerity of heart as to Christ. The theme running through here is you have a role to play even as a slave. And then he says in verse 9, even as a master. Now, it should cause us to pause for just a moment here, and I just want to address this briefly. What do you think about Paul addressing slaves and masters and not condemning slavery in the same breath? Do you see anywhere in here where Paul is condemning this relationship? In fact, I would challenge you throughout the entire Bible. Is there a place you can find where Paul condemns or any of the writers condemn that relationship between slave and master. And, and I'll... Slavery wasn't the same then. I think that I, I've got some examples. Well, I can't quote any examples, but I, I know that uh, slavery is not uh, what it was considered um, in, in our century. Uh, there were people that chose to enter into slavery um, for land and for marriage yeah. and for things of that nature. So. Great. Uh, you're exactly right here. Um, one of the things we're going to face, though, guys, as Christians, is a non-believer often will use this argument. They will point to several passages, including Ephesians 6, and ask that very simple question. Why doesn't Paul just say, um, instead of all five, six verses here about the relationship between slaves and masters, why doesn't he just come right out and say, um, slaves and masters, that relationship doesn't work. Because slavery isn't right. But instead he just, he doesn't necessarily condone it, but he just gives the relationship you should have and how you should act as a slave and as a master. And guys, this one topic comes, one of the most topics under fire in terms of non-Christian to Christian is this issue of slavery. So why wouldn't God say in the Bible, let's just get this out on the table, slavery's wrong. And part of the reason is exactly what was mentioned here. Completely different set of, uh, of lifestyles when we talk about slavery as we know, let's say Western slavery, as, compo- as opposed to um, ancient Near East slavery. Yeah. Uh, isn't there a part of the Bible that says something about living under the yoke of another man, that you should only live under the yoke of your, your God, or God in heaven. What? I thought there was something. Yeah, that passage doesn't cross my mind, but several passages do demonstrate that slavery was throughout the entire scriptures. Uh, even, I mean, starts in Exodus all the way through, I mean, Philemon's an entire book about a relationship between a slave and his master. Um, I'm, I'm not sure about the yoke passage. I'll have to look that up. One over here. Yeah. I think one of the main reasons why he doesn't say that flat out that slavery is wrong is that he's trying to bring, um, a sense of, I guess, value to a slave where I know if, whether you're talking about what being a Western slave, quote unquote, or back then, um, you could tend to feel like your life is 
has no value. Great. So he's trying to say that, listen, it doesn't matter who you are or what you're doing or what position you have in society or what may have you. Um, you have value, and you have value to me. Well said. Um, it, what if Paul did say that? Would it stop slavery? What if he said, there should be no slavery, God's not partial, would it have stopped? But rather, he comes to the issue of the relationship. Now, again, big, big difference between what was happening then and what happens now. Um, Guys, what was happening in, let's say, the 1500s all the way up to like 1865 or so, the 1800s here in the Americas, um, it was involuntary. It was race-driven. Uh, it was for it was for a profit. So it 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 signified that if I was wealthy, I could purchase slaves for my benefit, for profit, for cotton or for sugar or whatever it was. In the ancient Near East, it was often almost always voluntary, and it was because of to relieve poverty. So if I was poor, if I was in need of relief, economic relief, I could actually go, I could sell myself to someone to work for them, almost like, um, uh, like the, almost like the military, where if you're in the military, you, you don't have many rights, you are told what to do and you do those things, but it's voluntary. You went into the military. This is what was happening in the Near East. Ancient Near East is, is a Hebrew slave would go into that relationship or a man could actually sell his wife or his daughter or his son into that relationship. But it was to relieve people economically. It wasn't race related. In fact, what nation was God so against that pertained to a race driven slave relationship? Egypt. I mean, God wasn't in favor of that. In fact, the plagues would, you know, would, would signify that. And so God is not condoning involuntary, race-driven, it's for profit. Did you know that? I read a stat. UC Berkeley did a study recently. There are about 10,000 slaves in America today. You kidding me? Uh, 12 million slaves worldwide today, 2012. That's involuntary. Three quarters of them are female, half are children. Oh, I just wanted to mention the fact about the slavery. It seems like it's a typology as we are in relation to Christ. We are to be slaves to him. And that's the way I looked at it. Because Paul says in, in Romans, what, one, Paul, a bondservant of Jesus Christ. I'm a voluntary, I voluntarily am coming under the lordship of Jesus Christ. And so, yeah, there is a connection there. Um, real quickly, uh, we've got about five minutes left here. Go to Deuteronomy. Uh, go to Deuteronomy 15. I just want to show you something, again, to help alleviate this issue of the difference, what we're talking about, so that when you do, guys, engage with a coworker or a neighbor about this issue, uh, just to help them understand that we're talking about apples and oranges when we talk about slavery. But when we see it in the scriptures, it, we, don't, we don't make the connection. We see slave, we think of 
Africa, boats coming over here to America, and that just was not the case in, 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 for the Hebrews, okay? Uh, in fact, my question is, why would God take such, such painstaking words here to provide relief for a slave if he really didn't care about the individual? Uh, in, ver- in chapter 15, um, look at starting in 12... So what happened is if you had a Hebrew slave, if, if, if I went and worked for, uh, let's say, Marty over here, I would work for Marty for six years. Most of it, by the way, was domestic labor. Um, just FYI, but I would go and work for Marty for six years and I would receive wages of some sort. I would be considered part of his family, according to Leviticus. I, in fact, Deuteronomy says that I would get the Sabbath day off, that uh, it says honor the Sabbath. In the Ten Commandments. And, it, and then he gives a list in honoring the Sabbath. And he talks about all these people who are to honor the Sabbath. Guess who's in that list? Slaves. So the slaves would get the Sabbath day off. And then I would work for him for six years. And then guess what happens during the seventh year? I'm gone. I'm free. Not only am I free, but look at verse 12. If your kinsman, a Hebrew man or woman, is sold to you, then he shall serve you for six years. But in the seventh year, you shall set him free. Listen to this. And when you set him free, you shall not send him away empty-handed, but you shall furnish him liberally from your flock, from your threshing floor, from your wine vat. You shall give him as the Lord your God has blessed you. And he says, and you shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt and the Lord God redeemed you. Therefore, I command you this day. Do you think that happened in the plantations in the Carolinas or Virginia? That a slave could go to their master and say, it's it's the seventh year this year. Not only do I get out, I want you to hook me up here. Master would probably kill him. Uh, in Exodus 21, and there are regulations even for the way a master was to treat a slave. In fact, look at verse 16. And, show, and now listen what he says here. And it shall come about if he says to you, I will not go out from you, but he, because he loves you and your household. Since he, When's the last time you heard of a slave in the modern day slave trade say that I love my master so much that I want to stay with them? But that's what was happening here. That if you were a slave and you got and you were treated so well, you had the option of going to your master and saying, I love you. He shall take an awl and pierce your ear into the door and you shall be the servant forever. And likewise, do your mates. And so what Paul or what what Moses is saying here is, guys, the relationship was much, much different back in the Near East. So I just I point that out to you, I guess, because when we read passages like Ephesians, sometimes for some of us, it's confusing. We, we look at slave and we immediately go to roots. And we're thinking of roots. And that wasn't the case here. The relationship he wanted the slaves to have was to be obedient to your masters as to Christ. Render good service. Work hard. And then he says, masters, do the same thing. Give up threatening. Knowing that both their master and yours is in heaven. And there's no partiality with God. Catch the theme here. Because what we're going to talk about next week, guys absolutely pertains here we looked in chapter five at husbands to wives wives to husbands children to parents parents to children slaves to master master to slaves and in the very next portion of chapter six guess what paul is going to address in yours and my life you can look ahead it's right there what does he tell us to put on the armor of god because we are battling what 
spiritual warfare. Now, I've always taken that to mean, it doesn't it seem abrupt? Relationship, 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 the devil, spiritual warfare. What happened there? Maybe going into next week, we can think about it like this. If I'm the devil, and some of you might think that, and I were to think, okay, I can't, I can't steal believers from God. So once you're a Christian, once you're a, a follower of Jesus Christ, you are a new creature, you're locked up in God, there is absolutely no way Satan can get a hold of you in terms of for eternity. And Satan knows that. So if I'm Satan, and I know I can't get you forever, the best chance I've got, the only chance I've got is here on earth. And my job then is to make your life hell on earth so that you go to heaven um, limping and stumbling into heaven, so to speak. And I've got, let's say, 50, 60, 70 years for each of you to do that. And I'm the devil. What do you think, the, what do you think one of the most um, successful ways I can do that? See, and so that's why, guys, through relationships, that's why I think Paul spends so much time before he gets to spiritual warfare on relationships. I think that when we're doing this, husbands and wives, kids, when we're doing this, parents, when we're doing this, um, some people have used the employer-employee, slave, I don't want to go that far, but when we're living in right relationship, that spiritual warfare part seems to come a little easier. So be thinking in this week, guys, and be praying about the relationships in your life right now. Because if I'm the devil, I'm going after the relationships in your life. I'll, I'll somehow cause division in your relationships with each other. And then I'll just sit back and I'll watch you guys just implode on each other. I'll cause, I'll shake your relationship up here, your marriage or parent to child or and then I'll just step back. Satan doesn't need to come out with all of this fire and brimstone and you're going to hell. And he just needs to shake up our relationships. And then he just needs to step back and say, watch this. And it seems like often we are good at doing the rest. So let's protect ourselves this week because next week we are going to talk about how can we shore up those relationships as it pertains to the spiritual side of our lives. Let me pray for us. God, uh, as we continue to wrestle through and enjoy what you have for us in your word, thanks so much, Father, for, um, for being patient with us. I know for me, God, I look at some of these lists we have up here. I just even think about the way I'm handling some relationships and I'm failing. Maybe some of us tonight, Father, are bold enough to admit we're not doing well. Uh, but for the grace of God, go I. And, and Father, uh, in our weakness, we are made stronger. So, Father, accept our sometimes weak efforts. And save us, Father, in our relationships. Some of us right now have marriages that are, that are teetering, God. They're right there. And uh, we're, we're kind of in that countdown mode. God, I pray, save us. Save our marriage. Some of us, Father, our children hate us right now. 
And truth be told, we're not big fans of them. God, would you save us? Save us through your grace and your mercy. Even tonight, that reconciliation could take place. Uh, Some of us, Father, have friends that we are just at odds with. And we're waking up every day wondering, how much more mad can I be at this person? Would you save us, Father, from that friendship and allow reconciliation to take place so that the evil one, the tempter, the deceiver, the father of lies will not get a foothold into those relationships and that we will demonstrate to the world that we serve a God who is able to do that. Albeit imperfect, but good, healthy relationships. And we will give you all the praise. Father, I pray you bring us back next week um, so we can enjoy more of your word. In Christ's name, amen. We'll see you guys next week.